Lord, we ask you to just bless this time as we look at your word, guide and lead us to show us what you would like us to see from these scriptures tonight. We ask you to be with us as we enter into a new year. We ask you to help us to look to you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, Zechariah chapter 7, starting at verse 1. And it came to pass in the fourth year of King Darius that the word of the Lord came to Zechariah in the fourth day of the ninth month, even in Cheslu. When they had sent into the house of God, says Shirezer and Rechemelach, and their men, and to pray before the Lord, and to speak unto the priests which were in the house, and the Lord of the Lord of the host, and, and the prophet, saying, Should I weep in the fifth month, separating myself as I have done these many years? Then came the word of the Lord of hosts unto me, saying, Speak unto all the people of the land, and to the priests, saying, when you fasted and prayed and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, even those seventy years, did you at all feast unto me, even to me? And when you did eat and when you did drink, did you not eat for yourself and drink for yourself? Should you not hear of the words which the Lord hath cried by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and in prosperity, and in cities thereof around about her when men inhabited but the south and the plain? We're going to just stop there for a moment because we want to get the history on what's going on in here because there's a lot of stuff behind what's being said at this point. Uh, it came to pass in the fourth year of King Darius. This places us in one of the rare events in the Bible that we know exactly what year they're talking about, 518 B.C. All right? Or we know because we know when Darius reigned. <laughs> and we're in his fourth, fourth year of his reign. And God spoke to him. On the fourth day of the ninth month, even in Cheslu, the ninth month for the, for the Jewish calendar falls roughly between November and December. Um, if you're not aware of this, the, the Jewish calendar has 12 months of, 30, uh, of 28 days on them. Uh, so they get out of sync real quick. So when they have a leap year in the Jewish calendar, they add an entire month and it happens anywhere from four to 18 years when they finally get to, when, they, when the seasons get out of sync because everything is tied to the seasons. Uh, Passover is supposed to be in the fall. So when that, when, that's, when that month gets so far out of sync with it, they add another month, they move it back in, and they usually move it past where they want it. But they add an entire extra 28 days under their calendar. So when you talk about a leap year for the Jewish calendar, you're talking about a big change. <laughs> you know, we just add, we just add one day every, every four years. They, they would add an entire month uh, because they're already getting out of, uh, out of sync because we have, the, we have the 30 days in most of our months. They only have 28, so they're losing two. You know, every year they're losing 24 days. So every four, five, six, seven, eight, whatever, whenever they want to get these things back in cycle, and they've got a, a, a pattern for it, they add an entire month. And uh, so we know that this one, and this is why we say their month is somewhere between November and December for us, uh, for their ninth month. So they're in the ninth month, uh, which would be in the December, December, November, December. And it says that when they sent to the house of God, these individuals and their men to pray before the Lord. And the question comes down to who is they? Uh, and we look at this because the house of God here is Bethel, literally house of God, which is a city. 
So most people believe that this was not these guys being sent to the temple necessarily, but that they were sent from Bethel. Some of the new translations, I think, have Bethel in them already uh, because the word is Bethel, house, house of God. And, uh, and then later on it says they went to speak to the priests which were in the house of the Lord, which is Beth, Jeho- uh, Beth, Beth Jehovah or Beth Yahweh, right, which is the temple. So the people from Bethel go to the temple. <laughs> and that's how most people have, have interpreted this and the way they believe that the Hebrew reads, uh, because Bethel does mean house of, house of God, but it's also a city. And these people obviously were sent from some place. So we look at that and go, well, you know, who, who is it? Because if you don't go with that meaning, meaning Bethel, then you're going, Darius sent somebody over to them? And that doesn't make a whole lot of sense either. So we, we're going to go, I'm going to go with the fact that it is people came from Bethel. And they have a question that they ask, and they want to ask the priest. And, they, and their question is, should I weep in the fifth month separating myself as I have done these many years. What they're talking about in their history is when Jerusalem was conquered, it was conquered in the fifth month and burned down. So the people that were left in the land had a celebration, a mourning time in the fifth month to commemorate the burning down of Jerusalem. Consecrate, separate myself. Consecrate, separation, sanctify. Uh, fasting. It, it, it was a time of mourning. It wasn't really a feast. It was. Yeah, we we've been we've been weeping. We've been we've been stopping our stopping our activities. You know, uh, we're holding mem- in memorial that day for us in America it would be like Pearl Harbor Day. You know, day when we lost a lot of people. And for a long time, that was a day that was celebrated by, you know, solemn affairs. There was, it's never, even today, is not a day where people go out and feast and everything. It's not that kind of memorial. And this is what this one was on the fifth, fifth, fifth uh, month. It was a time of remembering the destruction of Jerusalem. This was, the destruction of Jerusalem was a big deal to the Jewish people. This is their capital having been destroyed. All right. In America, we went through the same process during the, the war, war of 1812 with the British when they burned down the Capitol in, in D.C. and it had to be moved back to Philadelphia for a short period of time and they literally burned uh, D.C. down to the ground. Uh, most people don't remember that, that part of their history you know, because we rebuilt it just a few years later. Here, they had to wait 70 years to get it rebuilt. And this is a big deal. This, is God, this wasn't just the capital of, of Israel. This was God's city. This is where the temple, this is where God ex- resided. And the building, you know, they were destroyed. And so on the fifth month, they would have this solemn, I, I don't know what to call it, solemn memorial, uh, that they would just say, we're not going to eat. All right, now the temple's been rebuilt. And Jerusalem is being rebuilt. They've rebuilt the wall, and they're coming back and saying, uh, we have this memorial every year for 70 years. Should we continue memorializing the day that it was destroyed? 
And so this is a question for question that they're making to to the priest. And we see in verse uh, four that it says, "And then came the word of the Lord of hosts unto me, Zechariah, saying, Speak to the people of the land and the priest, and saying, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, even those seventy years, did you feast unto me, even unto me?" So in other words, he's saying. All right, so what? You, you, you feasted, you, you, you fasted, you, you were sad, but you weren't doing it for me. God's saying you weren't doing it for me. Uh, now, the seventh month, if you're probably asking, well, what's the seventh month got to do with all of this? Uh, the seventh month was the murder of Gedaliah, uh, and that story is in 2 Kings 25, 20, uh, 20, 25 through 26, and in Jeremiah 41, 3, he was one of the governors of that area, and uh, he was murdered by rebels. <laughs> so they have two events that they were twice a year going into fasting and, and sorrow. And God's question is, number one, did I tell you to do this? Answer, no. And then the second question basically comes down to, were you even doing it for me or you were just doing it to remember the city? It's a picture of traditions. Oftentimes, traditions start becoming more important than the worship of God. And that happens even in Christian churches and, and denominations and everything where the tradition gets wrapped up. Uh, we do it even sometimes when we sing our songs and we just, we, we, we're singing our songs and not thinking about the words. We, we read the Bible because our, we're our goal is to make it through the Bible in a year, which, you know, and I'm, I'm all for that. Believe me, I'm the one that pushes for us to read through in the year. But if all my job is, is to read it like I'm reading a novel and, and, okay, God, I got my three chapters done today, I'm done, then you're kind of wasting your time. And this is what God's saying. You're, you've got this memorial, you're fasting and you're weeping, you're remembering Jerusalem, but Why? Are you focused on me at all, or is it just the memorial of the loss of Jerusalem? And we do this again. Like I say, we get into traditions. There are, there are churches that have traditions that are the same thing every single time. You go in, you do certain things, you, and, and then you go in and sit down, you do certain things. When I went to the Jewish synagogue, I watched them do a very interesting ceremony when it was time to read the law. They went to this cabinet, took out a little sil silver key, opened the door, took the scrolls out, which were all covered, and marched it around the church, the, the, their, their, their sanctuary, or whatever the, whatever the synagogue. And everybody was reaching out to it and everything. And then they put it out, and they do a big ceremony to remove the, remove the uh, cover on it. And then they roll it out, and, they, and somebody reads it. And then... You know, what shocked me most was it was almost being reached out as an idol as it was moving around, and then nobody seemed to be paying attention when it was being read. You know, I was a Gentile sitting there. I was looking around seeing what, you know, people are looking all over the place, and it's like, I couldn't, I couldn't understand because it was an Orthodox one, and it was read in, read in Hebrew, so I didn't know the clue what they, were, what they were even reading. But ceremony can become part of this. Uh, ceremony in many Baptist churches are the same thing. You come in, in, the, in many Baptist churches, you have a benediction song come in, you have your announcements, you sing three hymns, you have a special, you have offering and special music, 
the pastor speaks, you have a closing hymn, and you go home. And there are some places where if you violate that procedure with the Baptist congregation, they get, accept, they go, they get upset. You, you did not worship God correctly. You go to certain churches of the more Pentecostal persuasion, and you might have 20 to 30 minutes of singing before you start. And is there anything wrong with any of those traditions? No, but if they keep us from focusing on God, it's all wrong. And, and that's the point is we keep focused on him, not the traditions of how we need to do something. And God is saying here, you were doing all these things, but were you doing them? Were you really doing them for me? And why is he questioning that? Who would they go to see about whether they should do it? They went to the priest. Hey, priest, should we continue doing this? Implication, we're doing it for God. God steps in and says, were you doing it for me? Why, why are you bothering my priest with a question for something I didn't tell you to do and you haven't been doing for me anyway? And uh, it's quite an accusation. And this can be the same accusation to a Christian who's wanting to do things just because it's the way it's always been done. And they're not doing it for service of God. They're just doing it for the comfort. There is comfort in tradition sometimes. You know what's going to happen. You know how things are going to uh, go. And you just do it. And this is, this is where he's going, uh, saying on there. And then he says in verse 6, And when you did eat and when you did drink, did not you eat for yourself and drink for yourselves? Should you not hear the words of the Lord that cried by the former prophets of Jerusalem when Jerusalem was inhabited and in prosperity? So here he's going from, the, from their fasting. says, all right, you're asking about fasting and you didn't do it for me. But even when you ate, now this could be their normal eating, but I think he's referring to the Jewish feast that they were supposed to have that they were supposed to do. And he's going, even when you had my, my feasts, were you doing them, unto, you know, doing them to me? And this is something that even to this day, many Jews will sit down for the Passover dinner. They'll read the scriptures about how Jesus delivered them. They'll read all of these things and still barely think of Jesus, of Jesus, of God. You know, much the way Christians do with Christmas. We made it so secular and everything that even if we do look at a manger, manger scene or we do read the Bible story, it becomes tradition and we're not really thinking about the birth of God incarnate. This is quite a serious statement that God is making. Are you really worshiping me when you come together? And this is the way we need to be. When we're reading the Bible, are we going to God and saying, God, show me what it is that you want to do? And I'm as guilty as anybody else about that sometimes. You know, it's like, okay, it's time to read the Bible. I've got exactly 10 minutes before I have to be someplace. Let's get it over with. I don't do it a lot, but there are times when I'm going, I've got to get my three, three chapters in today. I know what it's like. I know what it means to fall into these routines. Now, when I say it's worthless to read the Bible, it's never worthless to read the Bible because God says his word does not return void. But we, if we're just doing it for the sake of getting it out of the way, we're not getting as much out of it as we do, God, show me today what you want me to see. So God said, uh, were, you paying attention, were you paying attention to me even when you were eating? And this could be regular meals, but I really think he's talking because he was talking about their ceremonies for mourning. Now I think he's talking about the, the feast because they would have had their Passover. They would have had Yom Kippur. They would have had 
Rosh Hashanah. They would have all these uh, celebrations. And God's saying, hey, when you did those things, were you even, you weren't thinking about me either. And it could be literally every meal that they ate, but I'm not, I'm not thinking that's what God is saying here. Uh, the, the context of it is your, your ceremonies, now my ceremonies, you still weren't, you weren't thinking about me. Um, but either way, it really doesn't matter. God wasn't in the forefront of their, of their mind. And that's what he's saying. You, you guys don't think about me. And then he kind of gets this interesting statement. He goes, should you not hear the words of the Lord, which the Lord has cri cried by the former prophets? When Jerusalem was inhabited and in prosperity, he goes, uh, and the cities there around about their men were inhabited in the plains and in, and in the south and in the plains. So he goes, back before the city fell, I spoke to prophets, is what Jesus, God's saying. Are you listening to any of them? Now you're coming to me. Most people think that if people just call out to God, he is just so happy to hear them call out to them in the middle of trouble that he's just going to stop everything and say, oh, I'm just so happy that you came to me. God knows when we're doing it with the right heart and the right desires or when we're just saying, God, I just don't know what to do. I'm at the end of my rope. Come and help me. And God does not, now he, he wants to hear from us. He wants to hear, he wants to have that. But when that's our motive, I need God's help. These are the kind of statements he goes, you've got your help. Jesus kept telling the scribes and Pharisees the same thing. You have the prophets, you have the law, you haven't listened to them. You know, your, your, your own leaders kept killing the prophets and now you're going to kill me. And this is basically what's being said to them here. You're coming to the priest. You're, you're, you're coming to the priest. You're coming. You're, you're supposedly wanting to know what I want you to do. What's wrong with Moses, Joshua, Judges, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel? He's coming down. He's, you know, he could have run down the whole list. You didn't listen to any of them. You're not even consulting any of them. Why are you pretending to care now? And why do you want a new word? This is a problem that we have many times, even in Christianity. People are looking for a new revelation, a new idea. Instead of going back to what God has said, we're looking, okay, God, what, what are you, what, what's new? How are you going to do this? Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. There never has been, never will be. God's word stays the same. And we have all kinds of crazy things going on in Christianity, even to this day. We have the prosperity gospel in there. If you're not wealthy, rich, and wise, and, and, and healthy, and, and all that other stuff, then there's something wrong with you. Well, that's not what the Bible says. You know, uh, there's the idea that everything, when you become a Christian, everything should be good. Oh, uh, well, that has not been my experience with God. Now, God has blessed me, and he's kept me, and he's in charge, and he works all things for good. But there's been a lot of hard things come my way as a follower of God. And there may be harder things yet to come as we get closer and closer to the end days. We may end up in prisons and, and losing our life because of God, being God's people. So these false doctrines in the church really hurt because when you tell somebody that if you have enough faith, God will give you whatever you ask for and you don't get the things you ask for because God says no, 
then that's going to destroy your faith because that's not what you were taught. If you're taught that everything is supposed to be good when you become a Christian and Satan comes knocking on your door and making life miserable, you're going to abandon God. This is why it is important to really look at what does God say and know what he says and know that he speaks the truth. And we want to, and this is what God's telling them. Hey, you're not, you never listened to me. You didn't listen to my prophets. You didn't listen to the ones that spoke to, to the Jerusalem when it was in prosperity and everything was good. You guys didn't listen to those people. And we've seen this throughout the scripture. God oftentimes will say, uh, well, Elijah one time said, you know, the people came to him and prayed, you know, he goes, what you, and God says, what are you coming to me? Go to, go to your gods. You know, you've been worshiping Baal and Astaroth. Why, why are you coming to God now? Go, go seek the gods that you've been following. Why would God say that? Because he knew that once, if he delivered them through their trial, they were going to go right back to their previous gods. He knew their heart was not turned to him in repentance. They, they understood that God was powerful. They understood that God was, had all authority. But yet they weren't ready to bow their heart to God and worship him. And they came to him and he says, just go back to your gods. You know, go back to the ones that you've been worshiping. Why should I help you now? And there's times when Christians are going to be told that. You know, you haven't been following me. You've been following the world. Go, go after what it is that you've been following. And God's going to say, now when we're repentant, and we're ready to repent and come to God, God will, God will do everything he, he needs to do to get us out of that, that pit. But if we're coming to him with just the attitude of, God, I need help, uh, really don't want to change my life, I don't, I'm not ready to repent, I'm not ready to change, but I need help, God is not going to lift a finger to help in that situation because he knows that we're, not, we're just using him. And God would not be used. It's like the parent who who helps their child every time they ask for help and knowing that their child has not been repentant, not going to change their ways, and all they're doing is perpetuating the child's bad lifestyle. That is not a good thing to do. God is not going to do that for us. If we are living a lifestyle away from him and not ready to repent, he is just going to say, nope, the answer is no, I'm not helping you. When you hit the bottom and you're wallowing around in the and the slime and the ooze and, and sinking in the sink, uh, quicksand, and you're finally ready to say, I repent, God reaches out and lifts us right out. But without that repentant heart of confession, God says, ah, you're, not, you're not deep enough in the, in the muck yet. You're not, you're not ready to turn your life over. And this is very important for us. Repentance. Repentance is a word that's not used a lot in the churches these days to turn away from our sin and turn to God. Most people go, well, God, I'm sorry, I won't do it again, and then they do it right back again, and they, and they knew they were going to do it when they were telling God they're not going to do it anymore. Uh, these are like the foxhole conversions. God, I, I'm almost ready to die. I need your help. And as soon as you get out of it, you go right back into whatever it was you were doing. People in alcohol and drugs and and fornication and those type of things, pornography, all do the same thing. Okay, God, my life's falling apart. I need your help. They get deliverance, not necessarily from God, even though they're going to attribute to him later on. But they get their deliverance and they totally forget. 
that they cried out to God. And this is what is happening here. These people are going, God is saying, why? You know, why should I come to you when you have not even listened to my prophets? And verse 8 says, And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus speak to, thus saith the Lord of hosts, saying, Execute true judgment and show mercy and compassion every man to his brother. And oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, nor the stranger, nor the poor. And let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. But they refused to hearken and pulled away and shouldered, uh, pulled away the shoulder and stopped their ears that they should not hear. Yea, they made their hearts as adamant stone, lest they should hear the law and the words of the Lord of the hosts sent to them, sent, as sent in his spirit by the former prophets, whereby came the great wrath from the Lord of hosts. Therefore it is come to pass, as he cried, that they and they would not hear, so they cried, and I would not hear, saith the Lord of hosts. But I scattered them as a whirlwind among all the nations whom they knew not. Thus the land was desolate after them, and no man passed through nor returned, for they laid the pleasant land desolate. So Zechariah is continuing with God's message to these people that aren't willing to listen. He goes, Execute true judgment and show mercy and compassion every man to his brother. This is what God's commands have been all through. All through the scriptures, he says we're to love one another and we're to execute true judgment. Is there time for discipline? Yes, there's time for discipline. But God says that there needs to be compassion. When somebody is suffering, we're to reach out. And I understand how easy it is to, to not reach out. You know, when you look at somebody and going, well, God, they're there because of all the bad choices they made. Well, of course they're there because of the bad choices they made. It's just part of life, consequences. But does that mean we turn our back on them? No. Now, there may be a time when we say, is this person ready to repent and, and before we turn, before we help? But we also, when they reach out, they need help. And it may be the time to reach out, reach, reach back to them. Uh, at uh, Pacific Garden Mission, their motto is never give up, which means they're helping people over and over, and they always help the people that come into their, their mission. Always. And they go, sometimes they have to come back four or five times before they finally hear the message of God. And it's been said that for individuals to get saved, that the average individual has to hear the gospel message five to seven times before they respond. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, uh, but I do know one thing that's true. Usually when somebody gets saved, you'll hear something like, that's the first time I've heard the gospel. Now, that's the first time I heard that word, which is quite funny when, you're the, when, you, when they're saying it and you know that you gave it to them as well. But in the same token, it is a true statement. When they got saved probably was the first time they got, got between their ears and their brain and actually was heard. You know, it hit their brain and got stopped in most cases. So it is probably true that, they, that it was the first time they actually truly heard what was being said. And I understand that because how many times do we have to hear something in a message four or five times before we finally respond? God knows that we're, we're hard-headed because he keeps repeating himself all through the Bible. 
his message over and over. You know, it's kind of funny because I teach in so many different books, and sometimes I think, didn't I just teach this? <laughs> and I go back, yep, sure did, in, in this other book, and sure did last month in that book, and sure did, you know, six months ago in that book. Why did God repeat himself? Because he knows that as human beings, we don't listen very well. <laughs> And he knows that we have to hear something several times before we finally respond. So he's saying here, execute judgment and show mercy. And then if that wasn't enough, he tells them, do not oppress, extort, is really what that word means. The widow, nor the fatherless, nor the stranger, nor the poor. So he's saying, don't take advantage of the poor, the people that have no, no means of getting living. This was something that happened a lot of times by the religious people. They, they would give out their, their pennies in, in alms, and, but really wouldn't help these people. Uh, if you, we've talked about this. On, when, they plowed, when they harvested their fields, they were not to harvest the corners. Some of them were really greedy, and they harvested it down to where there was only like four or five stalks left on the corner. They didn't get all the way to the corner, and that's what they tell God. I didn't, I didn't go all the way to the corner. There were other people that left huge, you know, 10 yards of the corners of their fields for the poor to go in. Why? The amount of compassion they had for them. You know, am I, am I helping the poor or not? You know, and some of them just said, well, I, God, I did what you said. I, I, I left three stocks over in that, in, on each of the corners. Uh, not what God intended. You know, God intended to be able for the poor to go into the fields and be able to earn a living. And this is the difference between what God does for taking care of the poor and for what governments do in our day and age for poor. Governments in our day and age just give the poor money and encourage them to do nothing. God said, all right, don't don't harvest the corner of your fields. Now the poor have to get up off their butts, get out of their house, go to the field, and actually do a little bit of work. Now they didn't invest in it. They didn't, they didn't do anything but get up and do work to earn what they got. And that was what God is saying. What is going on? God does not want us just to be lazy. Man was created for work. Adam and Eve had work in the garden. Now, I've always said work in a perfect garden was not probably that difficult. Uh, I think I want a tree over there. I think I'll plant a tree over there. I think I'll plant one over there. Uh, no weeds to pull. <laughs> Nothing rots. You get hungry, you just you know, pluck, a, pluck a fruit off there. Nothing was rotting. No, you know, no weeds growing. Uh, must have been probably the easiest work that was ever created, but it was work. And he had a job. And God has always had that place where he wants us to do something. Which is why I say many times our blessings from God come in the, come in the disguise of hard work. You know, God gives us opportunities to earn whatever it is that, he, that, we, that we need. And it's important for us to be able to stretch out and do that. If we turn our nose up at a chance to make some money and then complain that God didn't meet our needs, God will say, I already did. It's the, the story of the guy who's in a flood and God says, I'm going to deliver you. And so he, the, guy, the sheriff comes in and says, we need to get you out of here, get in the car. He goes, nope, God's going to take care of me. Water gets up to, the ground, uh, up to his house and a, boat come, a rowboat comes along. Get on in, we're going to help you. Nope, God's going to take care of me. House is, 
house is up to about the second story and then he comes out and got a guy in a, in a bigger boat comes and says, you got to get out of here. The water's getting up too high. God's going to take care of me. He's up on the roof and water's up to his neck and a helicopter comes along and he goes, nope, God's going to take care of me. And he gets to heaven and goes, God, why didn't you take care of me? He goes, I sent, I sent a police officer, a rowboat, a, a, a larger boat and a helicopter. What more did you want? <laughs> you know, too many times we have this idea of God's supernaturally going to do something and he's already working supernaturally behind the scenes by putting the right people in the path. And we don't listen. We don't, we don't follow what he says. We, then we do the wrong things that we know we're not supposed to do. And then we get the consequences and blame God for our consequences. Which is what he's saying. You're not, you didn't listen to the prophets. You didn't listen to the prophets. I sent you all kinds of prophets. Uh, don't do these things. And he says, let none of you imagine evil against your brother or devise evil against your brother. This takes us back to what Jesus said. If you've thought it in your heart, you've done it. This word's stronger than that because this is somebody that's planning something and is wanting to execute it. How can I take advantage of this person? What can I do to, to get the better of them? And we in our days seem to think that Taking advantage of the, of the poor is new. It's always been out there. God put, made so many rules against it. Don't, don't take advantage of the poor. And they would oftentimes, you know, get them so in debt. You know, this idea of in, being in debt is not new either. The rich would get some people in, so much into debt and then they would take their children as, as servants. And they would just help them out. Oh, you need some more debt? Here, have some more debt. Give some more debt. Give some more debt. Then they got to the place where they just could not afford to pay the debt or the interest or anything else. And then they said, okay, fine, we'll just take. We'll take your stuff. We'll take your family. We'll take, your, take everything. You're so far in debt. We in our day and age are, are people in America full of debt. And don't even think twice about it. God says that, it, that you are the servant to the lender. If you owe money, you're their servant. Whether they make you their servant right away or not, you're still their servant because now you get into a place where, how can I pay all these bills? God, how can I take care? God, I really wanted to give to that missionary, but you know what? All my money is going out to my, my bills and my, and my interest. Couldn't help that person. And God's probably looking at you, well, if you had just trusted me in the first place and quit, instead of doing all this debt, you'd have had the money to give to these individuals. And this is very important. We don't hear a lot of messages against debt in this day and age, but God is, was very much against debt. Why, why is he against debt? Well, for one big reason is, not just because I become the servant to the lender, but what am I saying when I take a loan out from some other person? God, you are not, you are not my provider. This, is my, this, this bank is my provider. This loan shark is my provider. This, whoever I'm borrowing the money from, that's my provider. And it's a really dangerous place to get into because it's easy to do, especially in our world of easy uh, credit. Ah, I'll just get a credit card and I'll buy whatever I want now and I'll figure out how to pay for it later on. You know, and it's a very big deal to God. Such a big deal that he told them not to loan with interest to their, own, to their fellow Jews. Now they could loan them money but they couldn't get interest, but that still meant you had a payment to make. You were still presuming on something other than God to get your, to get your needs met.
And this is a problem that God says, I'm going to meet all your needs. And the sadder thing is, usually when we go into debt, it's not for needs. Most of us do not go into debt to buy food from the grocery store or gas in our car. We get into debt for our car, for our home, <laughs> for all kinds of things. You know, the furniture in our home, the, the, the nice furniture, the upgrades of everything. You know, and God's saying, I'll meet your needs. What are you, what are you doing? And then we get so far into debt, we never can meet our own needs at that point. And then we start taking debt to pay our needs because we have consequences for having done all the wrong things. And then in countries like ours, we get enough debt, we go bankrupt and cheat the lender out of the money that they gave us in, in good faith, which means we stole. Now we go, well, God, I just, I did it, I did it, you know, uh, you know, because I had to. And God's looking down and saying, uh, you didn't have to accumulate all that debt. Now it's one thing if you had a bunch of health bills or something that really kept you and, your, and everything else was in line. But even then you owe that money. You owe that money. You, you took a service, you owe the money. And it's time to turn to God and say, God, I need help meeting the need. And so we see here, he says, don't, don't oppress these people. Don't imagine evil. Now he's switching, instead of looking at them, he's now talking about the past. But they refused to hearken and pulled away the shoulders and stopped their ears that they should not hear. They refused to hear. They refused to listen to the prophets. And this pulling away of the shoulders is shrugging their shoulders back in, in rebellion. It comes from the picture of the animal pulling on the yoke and they, to try to get it off of the off of them, they pulled back their shoulders to pull it off because they were being, they were fighting so much against it that it was choking them. So they would, the animal would shrug its shoulders. Same thing we see from people. They shrug their shoulders if they're trying to get a burden off of them. And he's saying, they did not listen. They were being stiff-necked is what they're really describing here, rebellious. And stopped their ears, plugged their ears up. Not only were they not listening mentally to hear, God says they were putting their fingers in their ears <laughs> and shrugging their shoulders against him and saying, I'm not going to listen. And then it says, yea, they made their hearts as animate stone. Now, this is an old word. It means an extremely hard stone. Sometimes they translate it as diamond. doesn't necessarily mean diamond. But a lot of people say because it was supposed to be the hardest stone that they must have meant diamond. Uh, but it is a hard stone something that doesn't be that isn't broken by anything else so he says they made their hearts hard that they would not listen to god or his prophets and it says lest they should hear the law and the words of the lord of hosts that is sent by the spirit of the former prophets therefore came the wrath of god from the lord of hosts God will only put up with us hardening our heart for so long before he will step in with judgment. With Israel, it took a while. They were on and off with God and rebellious against God and worshiping idols and not listening to God and not responding to God. And eventually God put them into captivity. He put them into captivity for 70 years. And if you remember, they were in 70 years because for 490 years, they did not let the land rest for every seventh year. 
Every seventh year, they were not supposed to uh, plant seeds. And God said, on the sixth year, I will give you an abundance of grain to get you through the seventh year. And for 490 years, they did not let the land rest. And God finally said, okay, I've had enough of your disobedience to me. You did not let the land rest. Now I'm going to give it 70 years of rest. You missed, you missed 70 uh, rest, rest years. Now I'm going to make it rest and you're going into captivity. So he's saying here, you guys got such hard hearts. You didn't listen. We need to be very careful if we find our hearts getting hard toward God's word and his, and his, and his words. Uh, if we find that, we need to really say, God, soften my heart, break my heart. Because God doesn't matter if it's animate. He'll break it if we, if we desire. He'll, he'll give us that new heart that, and take that heart of stone. But God says their hearts got like stone. And not just stone, but the hardest stone. And I'm going to go ahead and say, you know, let's just say it's diamond. They got so hard because diamond is the hardest, hardest uh, gem and stone that we know of. It, it's, we can cut it when we look at it, you know, but we cut it because we're looking for the flaws in it and we're taking advantage of the flaws. We actually don't cut the diamond. We just chip away whatever can be chipped away from it. And he's saying Your, their hearts became hard. Your, their hearts became hard, and he's saying you're basically saying you're like them. Why are you coming to me when you're not ready to listen? You're not even listening to the same people they didn't listen to. And again, they're looking for something new. It's an amazing thing to me as people try to find new things in the Bible. You know, what, what can I find in here who's, that's new? Well, when I find something that, is, that I look at and I think this is new, it scares me. It scares me a lot when I read the Bible and think that I've discovered something new, which is why I will go back in and I'll check out some of the old, old, old commentaries and say, has anybody ever thought this way? And at that point, if they have, then I can look and say, okay, now, did anybody tell them they were wrong? And look for those things. Because I don't want to teach something that's new. Now, that, does that mean that I always discard whatever seems to be new? No, a lot of times I like what, it, what God shows me. And, and I like being in the minority view of a lot of these things. But I'm going to check them out real careful to make sure that I'm not going to teach people incorrectly. I'm not going to teach people bad doctrine. And we see this over and over. And even these doctrines that we have aren't new. You know, the prosperity gospel is not a new gospel. Job and his friends believed in the prosperity gospel. That was one of the problems Job had. I honored God. I had lots of stuff. I proved that I, that I honored God. Job's friends came along and said, well, Job, you know that if you, if you love God, bad things don't happen to you. And you lost all your stuff. Well, you did something really bad for God to get that mad at you. And Job's answer always was, I understand what you're saying is true, but I really don't know what's going on. I don't think I, and I didn't do anything that bad. The prosperity gospel has been, been around since early, early on. The idea of being doing well if you're following God is an old false doctrine. God spent the entire book of Job breaking Job of that doctrine so that he could realize that that was not true. He believed it, his friends believed it, and most people believe that he discipled those friends. They were younger than him and he'd been the one that taught them. So he had to be able to learn, uh, just because I obey God doesn't mean that everything's going to be good. 
we see this. If you, if you have trouble with it, just go through and check anybody's life history out in the Bible and look at all the trouble they had and all the hardships they have. I can't think of a single person in the Bible that didn't have bad things happening to them. Uh, now, God got them through their bad things, but everybody had something happen to them to show that they were faithful to God. The hard things are when we get to trust God the most. If everything is always good and easy, we start taking God for granted. When we're in a place where nothing seems to be going wrong, we, we tend to slip away from God. And it's real easy just to slip away because everything's going good. God, I, maybe I don't need you. Life is good. God lets these things happen to us for many times just to push us back into his arms and say, wow, God, I really need you. Uh, I, I stepped outside of, the, I stepped outside of your, your fortress and it, I got beat up out there. Yeah. And we need that reminder every once in a while that God is our protection. And I've said this many times, you know, sometimes when life is going good, we start to take God's blessings for granted and think, well, this is the way life is supposed to be. Everything always going good. So sometimes God will step in and say, uh, I'm going to lift some of these blessings off and let you see that I'm the one. I'm the one supporting you. I'm the one providing for you. And we need to be careful with that. So God says, therefore a great wrath from, God, from the Lord of hosts when they stopped, their, stopped them. And in this particular case, he's going back to the beginning of the book, beginning of the chapter. Jerusalem was burnt to the ground because of their disobedience. God's reminding them. This is what's happened in the past. This memorial that you are having was because of their disobedience. You know, and you're memorializing their disobedience and not remembering why it happened. And this is important. Why do we remember things? If we remember these holidays, and unfortunately, most, even in America, most of our holidays have ceased to be holidays for what, what we were celebrating. We get to Veterans Day, and then don't think about the veterans that, that, uh, that helped defend this country. We get to Memorial Day, and, and don't think about all the people who died so that this country could exist. We come right through Pearl Harbor Day without ever thinking about the cost of lives and what, and what that day meant. We get to Fourth of July, you know, the signing of the Declaration of Independence, and we don't even think about all the costs that went into that. You know, almost everybody who signed the Declaration of Independence ended up dead and losing a lot of their money because of that stand for what they believed to be right. And we don't ever think about the beginning of our country that way. We're just happy. We're, 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 we're happy that we're a rich, rich, prosperous country. And don't worry about anything else. We need to take and remember. If we're going to say that we're celebrating the holiday, let's remember what we're celebrating. We celebrate Christmas. Is, are we really, truly celebrating the birth of Christ? We get to Resurrection Sunday. Are we really, truly celebrating the resurrection of Jesus? That one's quite, not quite as fully destroyed as most of the most of the holidays, but it's fast becoming destroyed. You know, with all the practices that people do as tradition, uh, we're going to go search for our Easter eggs on Sunday morning. We're going to have the kids find their 
their candy. We're going to get all dressed up and we're all going to go to church and listen to a message about Jesus being resurrected. We don't really care about it, but we're going to go listen to the message about Jesus being resurrected. Then we're going to go home and have a great big feast and forget about God the rest of the day. And that's how most people celebrate it, even Christians. And it's the one day that should be important to us as Christians. The celebration of Jesus' resurrection and, and victory over death. We need to be careful how we, how we con concentrate on these traditions and remember what was behind them. Why are we doing it? Verse 13 says, Therefore it has come to pass as, that as he cried, that they would not hear, and they cried and would not hear, saith the Lord of hosts. So he's saying the people didn't listen. They didn't listen. And as he cried out, they would not hear. And, you know, and he even said it twice. Then he goes, because they would not hear, I would not hear. There comes a point where God says, I've had enough. And judgment falls. When, when their city was encircled that last time by Nebuchadnezzar and his army, there were people in Jerusalem praying for deliverance. And God's saying, it's too late. There will be people during the tribulation period praying for deliverance, and God's going to say, I've forgiven you, but it's too late. All this tribulation is coming. And this is the thing that we have. When we lay up the consequences for ourselves, God rarely removes the consequences from our life. He can, and he might, but it is a rare thing when we deserve something for him to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to make sure that it doesn't happen to you even when we truly repent. When we truly repent and God might relent the consequences, but still there's a reaping and sowing. When we sow the seed, we will reap the harvest. And can God step in and supernaturally change it? Oh, he can. He can come in with a reaping sickle and say, okay, I'm going to clear this out of the way. But would we really learn if he did that? What would we learn if we did that? I can do whatever I want, and God will forgive me when I, when I cry out to him. Many times God will say, okay, nope, you, you did this. You now have to suffer. And this is what's going, going to happen here. Verse 14 says, then, But I scattered them with the, with the whirlwind among all the nations whom they did not know. Thus the land was desolate after them, and no man passed through nor returned, and they laid the pleasant land desolate. God says, I took my people out. And Nebuchadnezzar was one of the first countries that did this. He was one of the first kings that did this. He'd conquer somebody, and he moved the inhabitants of that land out of the land and scattered them all through the kingdom. So the Jewish people lived all over the Middle East, all over per uh, Persia, all the way out to India. He scattered them. And then what he would do is he'd take people from those lands and move them into the land that was conquered. So there were people in it, but not the people that belonged in there. Why was that done? And why was it so effective? Well, nobody really wanted to battle for land that wasn't theirs. So they're going, why would I care about this land? I want to go back home. And now, if I was home, I might fight hard for my, for my, my home. Plus the fact that who are you going to side up with? You know, 
all your all your neighbors are people that you guys don't even speak the same language except for the common language you're not there's no real real desire to overthrow the government because it's not your home No, they were they were put where he told where he put them, and then he took people from other places and put them in their land. America did the same thing to the Indians. We moved the East Coast Indians out to the West and the West Coast Indians out to the East to break their break their spirit and also probably knowing that they wouldn't be able to survive. We put desert Indians in the middle of swamps and forests, and we put forest and swamp Indians into the middle of the desert, and then kind of acted surprised that they died. Uh, there's, America's history is not good in many areas. And th those moves were not a bright spot in our history. Uh, it was very devastating during that period of time. And we made treaties with the Indians and then broke them. We, yeah, we, kept, it, we kept giving them land, but it was in a different place that they couldn't afford, to, they didn't know how to live in. And then when they died, mostly died out, no, you know, they kind of celebrated. Now we can get our land back. Uh, but here he says, God says, I scattered them. I scattered them all through the nations that they didn't know. And no man really developed the land of Israel during that period of time. They had no desire to. It wasn't their land. Their, their, their hope was always to go back home. What was really bad is when it became time to go back home, many of the Jews were so happy where they were at, they had developed businesses and they would bought homes and and farms, many of them didn't want to go back home. When, when, Eli, uh, when Ezra and Nehemiah and, and, the, and all these guys started coming back, they almost had to beg people to come back to Israel. You know, and you might think of it, it was kind of like the American West, getting people to leave the cities, on the, the, the cultured, civilized cities to go to the wild. And that's basically what they were being. What do you mean? I've got my library here. I've got my synagogue here. I've, you know, God, I, I've, had, I've had a life here for 70 years. I, my friends are here. Everything I own is here. Why would I want to go back to Jerusalem? And even when they did get to Jerusalem, nobody wanted to live in Jerusalem. They all wanted to live in the, in the countryside so they could have their farms. Nobody wanted to live in the city. And they had to, they had to draw lots. They took one in every 10 people in the, in the, in the country and made them, move, made them go to Jerusalem to live. <laughs> because nobody wanted to go to Jerusalem because it was a, it was a, it was a junkyard. You know, they wanted to go out to the country, build your house, build your fields. And you want me to live in the city? For those of us who live out here in the country area and we like the country area, imagine if somebody told you you had to move to Phoenix, to Phoenix or to, to Las Vegas. Okay. Yeah, we, we need people in these cities. You must, <laughs> you must move to these cities. And they had a national lottery to say, you know, uh, to get enough people to go into that, to go into those cities. That's what they did to get Jerusalem filled. Uh, because there was just not enough people that wanted to be able to set their home up in God's city. Yeah, so the leaders were kind of bothered. The capital should, have, should be the most most uh, populous town in the place. It should be well, well taken care of. People should care about it. And nobody wanted to move to the capital, uh, which was a big deal to them. So we have this pro process where God says, I moved them out and nobody redeveloped that city. 
When they came back to Jerusalem, it was a ruin still after 70 years. And it had to be rebuilt. And the temple had to be rebuilt. For 70 years, there was no temple. And the temple was important to the Jewish people because the sacrifices had to be made at the temple. And for 70 years, there's no temple. And then from this point, you know, 500 BC up until 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed again, since 70 AD, the Jews have not had a temple to offer sacrifices in. This is why the Orthodox Jews want so badly to get the temple rebuilt so that they can go back to the sacrificial system and know that their sins are covered, even though they won't be because Jesus fulfilled all the sacrifices, but as far as they're concerned, they need this temple so that they can have the sacrifices and have the blood covering their sin year by year. This is what they want. Oh, this is what they want now? Yeah, there's a third temple coming. God says there's a third temple coming that will be in existence when the Antichrist stands in it. And they want it. The Orthodox Jews want it because they don't recognize Jesus. And they recognize that God says that the heart is deceitfully wicked. No one, no one can know it. That all their righteousness is filthy rags. Nobody can get to, to please God without the shedding of blood. They know all of these truths. But the rabbis are telling them right now is because we cannot offer a sacrifice, you've got to do more good than bad to please God. And all the Orthodox read their Bible and say, that's not true. How can this be? even though their rabbis are telling them, this is how you're going to please God. And they're pragmatic. We don't have a temple, so therefore this has got to be what God <laughs> has allowed for us. And they desperately want the temple. And they're, they're right now they're moving toward that. They're training the priests. They've identified who the priests are. They're, they're training them how to do the sacrifices so that when the temple is built, the day the temple is built and ready to go, they're ready to to start offering sacrifices. Now, will every Jewish person go to the temple and offer sacrifices? Probably not at first, but many of them will, especially the Orthodox. The Orthodox are just waiting for this. But this is all consequences for the sin. The people sinned and they got their land taken away from them again a second time after Nebuchadnezzar when, when they sinned and destroyed Jesus, uh, killed Jesus and rebelled against Rome, and Rome destroyed them and scattered them. So again, Rome did pretty much the same thing that Nebuchadnezzar did. He scattered the people. He goes, all right, we're just going to move people out. We see here God saying, there comes this time when the consequences come. And God says, enough is enough. I look at what's going on in our churches around, the, around our country. And yes, there's still a number of good churches. But unfortunately, the good churches are outnumbered by the churches that no longer believe the word of God, teach the word of God, and follow God's word. They have become secularized. They've started following psychology. They've started following evolution. They started doing everything but believing God. There will come that point in time when the tipping point goes over and God says there's not enough true believers to keep moving forward and judgment will fall. Will it fall before the end days? I don't know. We look, at, we look at history. America has been a nation about as long as any other big nation has ever been in existence before it falls. And we are at the same point that every nation that has fallen has fallen. We've accepted homosexuality. 
Well, I don't want to say bad necessarily, but they don't teach they don't teach the word of God. They're not teaching the word of God. There's a lot more of them that that are not teaching it than that are. And the problem is that many of the seminaries have been totally taken over to teach people that the Bible isn't true. So they're graduating pastors that don't believe the Bible. So when they go, they have nothing to teach their people. They teach them nice little homilies and stories and and do do more good than bad and you're going to be okay with God messages. Uh, you know, follow God, have faith in God, and He will He will take care of you. But they have no solid rock to put their teaching on. So this is why when we go to churches, we need to be very careful and find out what do these churches believe. Right now, the largest mission field in the world that has more missionaries uh, going to that country is America. We have just about every nation in the world sending missionaries to us. And we have churches on every corner and Bibles in everybody's house. And, but the churches are so dysfunctional that these other nations are sending missionaries to us. It's a very sad thing when we used to be the greatest sending country. So it becomes very sad that we are getting more missionaries than anybody else uh, to help try to get us to repent. And the problem is, if you teach God's word, you're going to offend people. You know, all of us as Christians have had our toe stepped on more than once by somebody teaching us the word of God you know, it's amazing when I'm going through something and I'm listening to my pastors on the radio and it's like they all got together and, and decided to talk about my problem in the same week. You know, I know they all got together. I just know they all got together. You know, you know, and I'm, I'm teasing about that. I know that God is the one that arranged for me to hear what I needed to hear at the right time. But you know, all of us, if, we're, if you're a Christian and you haven't had your toe stepped on by the pastor of your church or the teacher in your Bible study, something's wrong. <laughs> Lord, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for your love and your care. Lord, we ask you to guide us as we go through your, your, your care. Show us what you want us to do and say and how we want, how we're to live. And, and give us soft, tender hearts to listen to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, 
tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.